0: Welcome to the Pregnantish Podcast, the only podcast that features the incredible length that newsmakers and thought leaders go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by California Cryobank, which carefully selects the highest quality sperm donors to give clients the best possible opportunity for a safe and successful pregnancy. For more, visit cryobank.com just three months after my next guest, Mallory Wegeman was rendered paralyzed after treatment for her back pain, she re-entered her happy place, the pool, and tried to regain not only her sense of strength, but her sense of self. Through this incredible challenge, Mallory learned about resilience, vulnerability, hope, and persistence, qualities that not only helped her excel as a five-time Paralympic medalist on the U.S. swim team but also helped her push forward during a tough chapter trying to conceive with her husband, Jay.
1: I always kind of held on to that hope to say, I have no idea how it's gonna work. I know nothing about IVF. I know nothing about male factor infertility because there's very little out there and there's nobody I can look to for support on that, but we're gonna figure it out. Now,
0: Mallory and Jay are expecting a baby and really do challenge what infertility looks like. This episode is about finding hope in the face of challenges, how to love your body when you feel it's failing you, and why being vulnerable is a sign of strength. I'm so excited to have you both on the Pregnantish Podcast. Finally, I know we've followed each other for a long time. We've tried to make it happen. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Yes,
1: thank you so much.
0: Oh, you know, I just I just love seeing you together. It's not often that I get to interview a couple at once. And you look so lovely. I know, you know, when we release this in audio, people can't see, but it's so clear the love between you and I think that so often we just tell one side of the story and we leave, you know. The partner out. But of course, it never takes one to make a baby, especially when we're in a romantic partnership with someone. And when we're creating a family with reproductive help, there's never one person involved. So it's really special to have you both here. How did you meet, by the way? How did you end up together?
2: Oh, you're going to look at me and yeah. have me go first? <laughs> yeah, okay. So you're so right. And first of all, it's so special to be able to do this together. You know, Jay and I have obviously. As husband and wife been on this journey together. But, you know, at the same time, we also came into infertility through male factor infertility. And so Jay's voice, I would say, is probably more important than mine in that scenario to really be a part of that conversation. But before we go there, I suppose we'll take it back to meeting. We met in 2011 through work. I was preparing for the London 2012 Paralympic Games, which were to be my first Paralympic Games as a member of Team USA. And Jay ran a sports agency And we met through the industry. I actually ended up signing on as a client of his. And we fell fast and furious in love over the course of the next year and started dating. And now here we are, you know, 10 years later, we've been married for over six years. We own the business together. It's truly become a family business now. And, you know, getting ready to welcome our first child while we continue the work that we love and you know, representation, but also in production. And so it's been really fun to kind of like merge all things that make us who we are as individuals together into how it's formed who we are as a couple, especially as we grow our family in the process.
0: Amazing. And Jay, I definitely want to hear your perspective when we get to it about Mail Factor, because you're so right, Mallory, that, well, that's a highly underserved area. And when people see you just at first glance on the street And they hear you're infertile, they may think it's on your end because you're in a wheelchair, which we know is just absolutely we just should never judge a book by its cover that way. But I would like to go back to and I know you've spoken so much. You're a motivational speaker. You've talked uh, deeply about your moment in life when you learned that you were paralyzed. So I'd love to hear for those who don't know it. What happened? Because you weren't always in a wheelchair, and I think some people may not know that.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we're 15 years out now. And so, well, that time in January of 2008 is such a pivotal moment in how it's shaped who I've become and the person that I am today. It's also just so unique because now we're at this stage in life where living with paralysis and being a woman with a disability is so core to my identity and who I am as a person but it wasn't always that way. And so, you know, when I was 18 years old in January of 2008, January 21st, to be specific, I went in to receive what was actually an epidural injection for back pain. And unfortunately, due to complications, I didn't walk out that day. I went in for what was to be a day procedure and I stayed in the hospital for six weeks, learned that I had incurred a spinal cord injury that resulted in paralysis and was kind of left two months before my 19th birthday to figure out what did that mean for me in life? And there were so many questions in the weeks and months and, and frankly, years to follow. There was the, you know, what does a future look like for me in terms of a career, in terms of continuing my education, in terms of relationships, a family, you know, all the things that when you're kind of coming into your own as a young adult, you think will naturally someday be a part of your life. It's just a question of when. And I think at that point in my life, it was all thrown up in the air. And so fortunately for me, I found my way back to the sport of swimming. I'd been a competitive swimmer since I was seven. And I didn't go back thinking I would become a three-time Paralympian. I went back just looking for a place to heal and grieve and process and and kind of find a way to move through and ultimately forward into this new life. And as a result of that choice, I not only found my love for the pool again, but I started finding my own self confidence, which allowed me to explore going back to school. It allowed me to find my passion for a career in, a, in the future. It allowed me to find my own self confidence in a way that let me open myself up to the idea of dating again, which ultimately led me to Jay, and ultimately gave me the confidence to ask the question that had been on my mind for years: of Can I have children? And you know, I to your point, I didn't know there was so much stigma and still is so much stigma in society towards individuals with disabilities when it comes to the question of parenthood. It's not only comes down to, can you physically bear children, get pregnant, carry a pregnancy, and deliver a child, but there's still so much of society that views it as, well, but what type of mother could you be in that process? And so I think that that was always a burden and a hurdle that I carried and then when Jay and I fell in love, you know, he had his own story of of his own fears and anxieties towards what a family in the future could look like due to his past circumstance. And so I think it was really powerful how it brought us together in that. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the day when we asked one of my doctors what it meant. And she said, well, if you happen to struggle with infertility, that obviously certainly can happen because it can happen to anybody. But it's not going to be because of your paralysis. And... You know, that was kind of a moment for the two of us to realize, all right, we have one end of the equation that we have kind of answers to. Now let's figure out what the other end of the equation looks like.
0: And Jay, being the other end of the equation, at what point did you learn about your fertility
1: or infertility? So I knew, or I shouldn't say knew, I was made aware back when I was a teenager after surgery I had as a young boy that there was a chance that I may become infertile. And as a 13-year-old boy, hearing the words infertile, kind of shake your head and go, what does that even mean? That's not me. I'll deal with it when I need to deal with it. So I always had that in the back of my mind as a young boy that that could be a chance that that could happen to me. And as I got older, it grew more and more top of mind for me. And I never knew or wanted to know, is that going to be true? And it wasn't until 2017, that Mel and I decided for me to go and have some tests done. And we will never forget, we are getting on a plane in Salt Lake City, flying to an event, and got the test results. You get the ding on your phone, a text message saying, hey, check out Portal, you have results. And we looked at those results, and we looked at them, stared at them, stared at each other, and just broke. And as we're breaking... I have to say, like, I felt like the entire plane is being filled with kids coming flying to L.A. from Salt Lake everybody City.
2: everybody on that plane that day from Salt Lake City to L.A. had a kid in worms and they boarded it. We were just
1: it, like, just, it was the biggest gut punch. Oh. And just looking at it going, that can't be right. What does that even mean? And we had a follow up with our doctor and my doctor, and it just proved what I had always thought was a possibility. And was kind of that nightmare going, no, this can't be true.
0: And what, in kind of layman's terms, what did those tests reveal? Because I know when I received FSHAMA, all the numbers you get, motility and sperm, and I had no idea how to interpret it. So did you know right away when you opened that portal and the results what it meant? And in layman's terms, what did it mean?
1: Well, there was a big fat zero. Ugh. So zero sperm count. And when you look at it, you kind of do some research. It's supposed to be in the millions. I was at zero. So right away, it's like, okay, Either they messed up on the test and do we do it again? Which we ended up doing another test to confirm about a month later, but it was zero again. And at that time, you know, the doctor said, well, with time, it can get better. It can grow. We don't know. Fluctuate. It can fluctuate. In my mind, it's like, well, what can fluctuate from zero? I mean, I'm not getting in the millions. So, you know, what are we working with? And at that time, Mallory and I weren't ready to...
2: No, we just gotten married and our whole relationship has been centered around the Paralympic Games schedule. And so we got married after the Rio 2016 Games and we knew that we wanted to continue towards the 2020 Paralympic Games in Tokyo. And so my body was going through a few things from an injury I had prior to Rio. So I was getting surgeries done. So long and short, we knew there was no way in the four years between Rio and Tokyo that I could go through two major surgeries, be out of the pool, rehab, go through infertility and IVF, which was ultimately what we were told was our only chance at having a genetically viable child of our own. And so we knew like the two didn't add up to equal then being able to be ready for Tokyo. And so it was a very clear decision that we were going to have to wait until after the Tokyo games to try to kind of, go through this next stage and process and see what our options are and what that all looks like. So we kind of, we grieved. Yep. We definitely grieved. We put a bit of a pin in it. And then I would say in March of 2020, the end of March, when they announced the IPC and IOC announced that the Olympic and Paralympic games were in fact being postponed due to the pandemic, the pin came undone. And for us, I think it was just the realization that whenever you go through infertility, you just feel like everything's a ticking time bomb. Like time is not on your side. And for that moment on that day, it was probably the first time I ever vocalized in that much heartache, the idea of to what extent am I willing to continue to sacrifice for my career? Because I can't go through IVF and be a professional female athlete training for a games there wasn't enough time on the clock and so that was a really really hard reality of we have to be both in full agreement if we're going to continue another year because anyone who's been in these shoes knows a year can change the game entirely and so we knew going into that extra year of training with the postponement that this dream of having a family that we were getting closer and closer to by the day thinking fall of 2020, we would start, was now well over a year past that. And that was nerve wracking because we just didn't know what the end result would be and what that extra year could have potentially cost us in the long run. It's so true about that ticking time bomb. I
0: think it's so hard to explain for people who haven't been through it. And by the way, on the Pregnish podcast, we've had Sarah Kennedy-Ellis, who's a VP at Google, who had a different growth trajectory in her career, where it wasn't easy. She was flying around the world. And we just had Camille Guadi, who's an actress who had a shooting schedule. And we have these busy lives. And unless you've been through IVF, you don't realize how disruptive one cycle is, I mean, on your schedule, right? It is. So the pandemic, though, did illuminate for so many of us, really what we wanted and what mattered. And I think for good reason, we just became so existential about everything about life. So you guys, I'm always curious as a couple, how did you grieve or process these things together? Was it just kind of came naturally? Did you seek outside help? Like what was your process?
1: I mean, to that point, we're in the heart of the pandemic and I think the hardest part is we had to process it together. You know, can't go leave the, you know, our home during that time, it was a lockdown. And I think we, we grieved together and that time allowed us to grieve and to let it out. And I know I remember finding Mallory in the closet in our room and just curled up with our dog, just saying, to what end do I have to continue to make these sacrifices for the future of our family? And I wanted her to know that whatever it took, we were going to find this path forward. And I would never, ever resent swimming or her career because we couldn't start IVF. We couldn't start the process of planning for a family for another year or another two years, whatever it took, and we'd figure it out. And I always kind of held on to that hope to say, I have no idea how it's going to work. I know nothing about IVF. I know nothing about male factor infertility because there's very little out there. And there's nobody I can look to for support on that, but we're going to figure it out.
2: And we did. I think we really leaned on each other. We both kind of leaned into... You know, I like to journal and Jay has his own equivalent of that where he kind of takes space for himself. But then we turned to each other a lot. And I think for us, you know, call it a blessing. We've been through a lot of hard stuff together. You know, Jay and I met after my paralysis. But in 2014, after the London Games, I had a catastrophic injury to my left arm that resulted in nerve damage. And sadly permanent nerve damage and that completely threw everything up in the air all over again and we went through that together lock and step and we fought with everything we had to make it to those rio games and then we came home and we went through two major surgeries that resulted in weeks in the hospital with him on the cot every night next to me and like you know i think there's this element of when we look at adversity or circumstance It's not to make light of the trauma we faced in our past, but there is something to be said that everything we go through is preparing us for something in the future. And I do think that things we went through in our past prepared us to be able to handle the different emotions that were going to be thrown at us and the fire hose, frankly, that was coming our way that is navigating through infertility and ultimately going through IVF. And so We really clung to that and we really leaned in going into Tokyo. Our motto was that Jay came up with is protect the dream. And so our deal, once we finally got back, like kind of got our feet on the ground and came up for air and training venues started opening up and I was back to training. We really leaned into saying Tokyo is a journey that we are doing as a family. Mm -hmm. And while little one is not physically in existence yet, Little one is a part of every single decision that we are making right now. And they are a part of this journey. And we always viewed it as it wasn't just Jay and I or Jay and I and our dog, Sam, for anyone that may stumble upon Instagram and see that furry yellow lab <laughs> that we <laughs> love. <laughs> but Jay and I and Sam and this little one that we are fighting so hard to have in our life. And so that really led us into Tokyo and ultimately brought us into the fall when we came home and Literally just dove headfirst into this journey of, you know, understanding what does male factor infertility entail? What are our options? What, frankly, aren't our options?
0: Can you tell me more about that? Because, yeah, so many listeners have these question marks and it's comforting. It's always comforting when we could help destigmatize, demystify things that are so common, but we don't hear enough about. So, what When you were in your fact-finding mission, what did you learn was possible and not possible for you, Jay?
1: Yeah, so it had been October 2021, so you got back from Tokyo in September. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is, for us, we knew time wasn't on our side, so jumping right into whatever testing we needed to do, whatever doctor's appointments, the blessing was a lot of doctors were doing virtual. So take full advantage of the doctor, could get on the phone that week, for an appointment to talk through what the process could look like. And I think for me being willing right away as the male in this to do whatever test is needed and not be afraid of the test. And maybe because of 2017, it did those tests and kind of knew what we were working with, but get right in and get those tests because that could change and help with the trajectory of which path we need to go down. And I remember we did those tests again in October Mm -hmm. September, we got the results back at the end of September, going into October. And my doctor, my urologist said, you need to go right to IVF. And I was like, can we try for like nine months? They say 12 months. Should you try? He said, There's
2: no chance. And not only did he say we need to go right to IVF, there's many ways that you can retrieve sperm when you're in IVF, right? It can be just a semen sample in a cup that's brought in. You do the same morning of the egg retrieval. You can do what's called a Mm tessie, which is like a biopsy, basically, of the scrotum that gives them a sample tissue. And then they go in and try to find sperm in that sample tissue. Or they can do what's called a microtessie, which is the most invasive version of a sperm retrieval, which is general anesthesia, full OR. They have to surgically remove with a microscope one by one sperm from from your testicles if they can find it keyword if it's like a 40 percent success rate the news
0: that jay and mallory had to undergo ivf because of jay's male factor infertility diagnosis is something that is certainly part of what infertility looks like but a reality that isn't discussed nearly enough while well, at this point, Jay didn't know if they'd extract any of a sperm with the Microtessi surgery, some men with male factor infertility are told there's no chance of conceiving a biological child, and they may pursue sperm donation to build their families. This news is tough to navigate, and our episode partner, California Cryobank, is here with us now for this episode break to tell us more about who should consider this, how to embark on this journey, and why it's more common than most people realize. Welcome, Lauren and Scott, to the Pregnant Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Can you each introduce yourself, maybe starting with you, Scott? Thank
3: you. Great to be here. My name is Scott Brown. I'm the Senior Director at California Cryobank, and I oversee our client services team.
4: Awesome. And Lauren, nice to have you here. I know we've met in the past. Thanks, Andrea. I'm really happy to be here, too. So my name is Lauren Isley. I'm a Medical Science Liaison at California Cryobank, and I am a genetic counselor by training.
0: Wonderful. So we have two experts here, which I think is so helpful because this is a diagnosis, and you guys know this well from your work in this field, that catch some people by surprise because there really isn't enough attention on needing to access your services at California Cryobank when you have male factor infertility. So For both of you, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about male factor infertility, in your opinion?
3: I think, first of all, that you're alone, that it's a problem that you have to deal with completely in isolation. It is, you know, much more common than anybody who's dealing with it would ever assume. Roughly 15 to 20 percent of our clients at California Cryobank are working with us because of male factor infertility, and it's something that we see on a daily basis.
4: I would echo Scott in that I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that male factor infertility is rare when in fact that's not the case. In fact, when you're looking at a couple that is experiencing infertility, sort of the general guideline is that about one third of the time it's related to male factor infertility. So again, this is much more common and men who are experiencing this certainly are not alone. Absolutely. That's one reason we're
0: so grateful that Jay on this episode is sharing his diagnosis, because if more men talk about it, it helps destigmatize something that shouldn't be a stigma. It's a medical issue. So, Lauren, you're a genetic counselor. I'd love to hear from you. What are some of the common genetic tests that may be performed when assessing male factor infertility?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, Andrea. So, A lot of these evaluations that are performed on men to assess for male factor infertility, they're often performed by urologists or reproductive endocrinologists. So I will say it's really important that a patient is working with one of these specialties during an infertility evaluation. So as a genetic counselor, not as a urologist or a reproductive endocrinologist, I can kind of speak on a very high level about the evaluation process and how genetic testing might play in. So for a male, a semen analysis and hormonal evaluation, these are often part of the initial steps of the workup. And depending on the results of those evaluations, the semen analysis and the hormone profile, there are specific genetic tests that might be indicated. So those genetic tests could include a test called a karyotype analysis. And that is essentially looking at a Picture of somebody's chromosomes. These are packages of genetic information that are found in all of the cells of our bodies. And the test is essentially evaluating to determine is the correct number of chromosomes present in that person and is the correct structure of chromosomes present in that individual. So sometimes if there are chromosomes that are in a different arrangement, such as something called a translocation, where pieces of chromosomes are essentially flip-flopped and in the wrong place. Or there could be the presence of an extra chromosome. For example, Klinefelter syndrome is when a male has an extra X chromosome, and that can result in male factor infertility. And then there's also other testing, like a test called a Y chromosome microdeletion, And then additionally, if there are structural differences in the vas deferens, testing for a condition called cystic fibrosis might be indicated. So those are just a few common examples.
0: It's really, really interesting because I know there are many listeners who are probably writing down what you are educating us about because it sometimes just feels like the Wild West when you're given a diagnosis like this. And again, not enough people are talking about it. So thank you for that. I wonder where we are now compared to about a decade ago. I know genetic testing has wildly advanced in the last few years. So in your experience, where are we now? What are you able to see maybe that someone navigating this diagnosis or didn't even have this diagnosis, you know, 10, 20 years ago wouldn't see?
4: So genetic testing technology has just grown exponentially in the past decade. So there was a paper that was published in 2018 that suggested that about 75,000 genetic tests were on the market at that time, with about 10 new tests entering the market daily. And that was five years ago. So imagine where we are now. And I will say, you know, the amount of genetic data that we can generate today It really outpaces our ability to actually interpret that data, meaning we can get that information, but we aren't always sure what it means. In general, genetic tests are often a crucial component of the infertility evaluation, as well as family planning. And genetic counselors can really help patients navigate those tricky waters of understanding genetic test results and then helping them make decisions based upon those results that are most in line with their values. Yes, and at California
0: Cryobank, I know you have that personal care, which is so important, again, for this vulnerable journey we're on. Scott, in your work there at California Cryobank, you must see so many cases like Jay's where they feel powerless and vulnerable at the time that they learn they may not be able to have a biological child. And so I'd love to hear more about that support and the resources you offer there for men on this journey and couples on this journey. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. Initially, we can certainly support our clients at the lab level. I mean, doing a, a semen analysis, which is obviously an important part of this process, is actually really simple. Male factor and fertility is a much easier diagnosis in most cases than female factor infertility. And testing sperm quality versus testing egg quality is, is very simple. Sperm is a, you know, essentially it's how much sperm do you have? What shape is that sperm? And What percentage of that sperm is swimming in the right direction? And we can look under a microscope and answer all those questions pretty quickly. So first and foremost, the ability to support people and help them potentially have a biological child when it's not happening organically and automatically is something we really take a lot of pride in and are very proud to be part of. Now, when you do get that diagnosis, that takes you to the next level and that's when you start looking at donor sperm. And we really approach it from a, a very both scientific, but also emotional perspective. I mean, we understand that this is, in a lot of instances, a very difficult step in a couple's life for that individual. And oftentimes we see the male in the partnership uh, is having trouble with it. Sometimes the men are very well accepting and adjusted and have no problem with it, but their partner is facing challenges and having trouble with it. Sometimes the couple is in sync and in harmony and, and choosing a donor is easy. And sometimes they have different things and different perspectives and different things they are valuing in terms of that donor. And so our role in this process is to guide people, answer questions, and really help them from wherever they're starting, which is a different place for everybody, But to the finishing point where they are really excited and enthusiastic and happy about the donor and more positive about the journey they're about to go on, because we're all about family and family takes many shapes and sizes. No two families are alike, we like to say. And to us, family is about the bond and the love that it takes to build a family and not about the genetics that make people genetic relatives.
0: Love makes a family, for sure. I think you spoke about helping guide people working with California Cryobank on this journey, and including, I imagine, picking a donor match, sperm donor match. Jay, well, he was told he had male factor infertility, and we're going to get back to this episode soon to hear what happened with his microtessie surgery, but... For people who don't find any sperm and they need to find a match, how do you even start that process? How do you help guide people there, Scott?
3: So in the beginning, it's very similar to to almost anything else that you're doing on the internet these days. You open an account with us, and you have a number of search fields that you can start clicking on. We have a catalog of anywhere right now we're at about 300 donors. We generally are higher than that. But coming out of COVID, it's a little bit light right now. But when you're searching for a sperm donor, there's certainly fair physical characteristics that you want to start with, right? As a jumping off, point, you have 300, you got to narrow those down to one. And so you can use the individual that, you know, the, the male as a template in terms of physical characteristics, ethnic background, that sort of thing. You can look for a donor. That's a combination of the two partners. You can do any number of things. And so, we ask people to open their account and to start the search and to start sort of generically. If you're Caucasian, if you're African-American, if you're Hispanic background, maybe that's a good place to start. And when you click on that box, you're going to bring that down. So as you click through these physical characteristics, your options will go from, as I said, 300 plus down to hopefully a dozen or so. And then you start diving in and really investigating more about these donors as unique individuals. And there are essays and photographs and audio recordings and art projects they do for us. There's three generations of family medical history you can look at. There's education, stuff about their educational background, their professional backgrounds, their hopes, their dreams, their talents, their skills. And so a lot of things are genetic and a lot of things are nurture, but we want people to be able to make an emotional and personal connection to the donor not only to feel comfortable about the process at the time, but should they choose to have the discussion with their child about how they were conceived, they're going to have all that information to share with their child as well. And we think that's an important part of the process.
4: Yeah, Scott, I agree with all of that. And I also just want to add in terms of resources and support and how we at California Cryobank work with individuals and couples to help find a sperm donor. We also have a team of reproductive genetic specialists who are trained as genetic counselors that can answer a lot of questions about a donor's family medical history, what this could potentially mean for any of their children down the road, and also help navigate some of those questions around genetic test results like carrier screening, which can be really confusing these days when so many conditions are being tested for at once. But we do have a team of individuals that can help with that and provide resources for those couples or those individuals who have more of those genetic testing or family medical history related questions once they get that donor pool narrowed down a bit.
3: In addition to the amazing genetic screening process that goes on with the donors, I also just want to mention that the screening process to become a California cryobank donor is incredibly robust and, and less than 1% of the applicants actually qualify, and that includes obviously specimen quality, three generation to family medical history to review, our incredible genetic screening and review, psychological screening, criminal background checks, educational requirements. It's a very intense process to make it onto the catalog, and so one of the things I think it's always important for people to realize is no matter who you choose as a donor to help start your family, it's the right choice. There are no wrong choices. You're not one donor that's going to give you a better chance of success than the other one. It's really a a great place to start because they're all great options in the end.
0: Thank you, Scott and Lauren, for shining a light. So much good education and information on this option for some men, some couples navigating male factor infertility. And I think what you're doing here is just providing not only hope, but information, a path forward. And I know with California Cryobank, they'll be in good hands. So for our audience, to learn more, go to cryobank.com. Thank you, Scott and Lauren.
3: Thank you, Andrea.
0: Thanks, Andrea. Appreciate it. And now back to Jay and Mallory's story and how they decided to undergo the Microtessi treatment to try to extract
2: Jay's sperm. It became very clear, very fast, based on your tests, that Our only option was a micro Tessie. I mean, we could try a Tessie, but the success rate was like 5%. And then you'd have to wait six months before you could do a micro Tessie. And also factoring in that time wasn't on our side yet again, because I'm continuing my athletic career to Paris. And because Tokyo was delayed a year, there's only three years now between Tokyo and Paris, not the normal four years So we're doing this like whole game of math in a scenario that frankly, everyone in infertility knows you can't plan it. That's the hardest part of this whole thing. There's no guarantees. You can't plan it. And so we were kind of just drinking from that fire hose and had to make really quick decisions with frankly, very limited time to grieve and
1: time to like process. It was, you know, take it in. You have 24 hours to make a decision tomorrow. calls. It's kind of like, well, that's that's not fur. can we can we take the week? Can we take the month? and every month or or day you push back, it pushes it back weeks and months because then back. that's all timed with the female cycle, right? Exactly.
0: And that's the strangest part too, because it's Jay, you're looking at your options, but it's totally contingent Mallory on your cycle. And, uh, you know, that old expression, make plans, God laughs, but make plans with a fertility treatment. Oh, that is hilarious. How many times have you thought, I know I thought, this is the one, this is the month, this is the... And then, like, sometimes a clinic would forget to tell me instructions or drugs would be missing from my doorstep or I'd have a work, like a book appearance or whatever happened. It's amazing how... You know, expect the unexpected when you're trying to expect is what this podcast should be called. So Jay and Mallory, you had to make this decision. This is a pretty invasive surgery, but you just said, OK, let's do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Basically, going back to what you were just saying, it became a full time job. Uh-huh. You took on the lion's share of trying to figure out what all like the medications, what they mean, what they are working with our fertility.
2: Well, clinic. And when we did our consult for the surgery, that was an october october and we were looking at the calendar and based on when i got my cycle and then our clinic closes the only time they close the lab for the embryology team for them to do what they need to do each year is the two weeks during christmas and so when we looked at where my cycle was falling if we did the like clockwork that it was falling on if we pushed it we would have hit that so we would have had to wait to january so it was like oh are we green lighting and literally trying to start in like two weeks when my next cycle comes? Or are we waiting till the new year, which was terrifying because there's no guarantee that you get what you need in your first cycle. And so we literally jumped headfirst in like two weeks after his consult, we called my doc within a couple of days and said, let's do this.
1: Well, we had to going back to my consult. We had the one appointment and I remember sitting in there was the one we had in person. And my doctor's laying out the Tessie, this micro Tessie, and I'm asking these questions and I'm saying, well, is there any other options? No, these are the two. And then, then we asked, what are the success rates? The Tessie was 5%. 5%. Oh my gosh. And then the micro Tessie was like 30 to 40%. And I knew in my heart, like, that's what we had to do. But then you're listening and you're saying, okay, this is an invasive procedure. You're fully under anesthesia. This is what we're going to do. It could be a three hour procedure and there's no guarantee. You're not given any time to really process that. It's like you have to either say it right there that you're going
2: forward. Well off. for for the clock we were working. Yeah, on. for the yeah. clock we were working on. Yeah. We That's could have doing. chose to process longer. We just correct for our clock. Kind of Could have chose, but didn't really have time to choose, if that makes sense. But in a weird way, I can see,
0: well, not that anyone wants to be up against the wall with these decisions, but in another way, you can get so tortured by decisions during this process because the stakes are so high, right? It feels sometimes like you have no options and too many options, too much information, not enough information. It's the wacky world of fertility treatments and infertility. (laughs) So... Just deciding to do that. What happened after that surgery, after that procedure?
2: So I think the the biggest part for us was the time, the two and a half weeks leading into his surgery. And, you know, the way that they like to do microtestes is they time them with your retrieval so it's fresh. So we're for two and a half weeks going in, stimming. And getting my body ready and doing that whole process of the protocol for my egg retrieval. And then waiting for that final ultrasound where they say, follicles are ready. Here we go. And Jay's going to go in for his the day before mine, right? Because the best success for ICSI from our clinic standpoint is, and, and ICSI is just the means in which they fertilize the egg. With the sperm after a microtesty, ICSI is the only option because the sperm's not mature enough to be able to kind of do it on its own. And they like to use fresh eggs and fresh sperm for that. And so I think what was tough is, you know, we get the meds, we, we say, okay, let's do it. We get the final testing. My body gets the green light that it's ready for the retrieval cycle and STEM meds. And we're just waiting now. We're waiting for cycle day one so we can go in for that first ultrasound, get the double confirmation that we are good to go. We don't have any follicles that are trying to mature too early that are going to push us and cancel the cycle to the next. But then we look at the calendar. And we're like, oh, well, shoot, I'm in the middle of book tour. So now what do we do? So we get the box of meds at the house and we pack up the little Yeti cooler for the ones that need to be refrigerated. We pack up the contingency doses of all the other stuff for, you know, like depending off dosing shifts, And we get on our plane and we start our multi-city book tour. And my plan was, if cycle day one comes here, 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 we had like the three versions of plans, I can get on a plane from this city or I could get on a plane from that city, fly home for a couple hours, go to my clinic for the ultrasound, get back on a plane, go back and meet Jay at the hotel and start our stim meds, assuming the ultrasound gave us the green light, which is what we did. We were in Nashville on book tour when the day came and I flew back home. Jay stayed down there because it was just easier to have him there and got in the car, drove to the clinic, got the ultrasound, drove back to the airport on the next flight. And we sat on YouTube that night at a hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, figuring out how do we mix Menopur and like, how what are we doing? (laughs) I know I've had those moments too. It's in a way, it's
0: like the strangest preparation for parenthood, the juggling you're doing. Yeah, because you have to be like the most organized person or couple to swing these things, like,
2: and and extremely resourceful and creative. Yeah, yeah. But you did it. You did it. And you know, part of the story that I like to acknowledge is, you know, we had a couple last week who reached out via private message on social media to us and shared that they are in the process of their stem cycle right now to get ready for a microtesty that is coming up here when her body's ready for her retrieval. They're doing the same fresh thing. And the emotions that that couple shared with us were the same things we felt of how terrifying and isolating it is knowing every day we did every single med protocol together. We put a little routine around it. We did it, the two of us, every injection. And we knew every day as we prepped my body, there was nothing we could do to prep Jay's body. And there was nothing we could do to change, is this going to work? Are we gonna go in the day before an egg retrieval and find out if we can or can't have genetic children of our own? And in a lot of worlds, surgeons who do microtestes, they exhaust all options on the first go. So if they're not successful, they're not gonna go in and do it again in the future. It's your one shot. And so that was, I would say of the entire journey, one of the more stressful parts. Mm -hmm. Now, I would also say though, for us, being our first go at it, ignorance was also bliss because Jay and I assumed when we got that news that we had been praying for, and I got to tell him when he came out of surgery that it was successful, we were so naive and we're like, oh, then we're going to get a kid. Like, I don't know how, and at some yeah. point, but like some way, shape, or form, a baby comes out of this. And then you go through the attrition of, you know, you have X amount that fertilize, and then how many hit three day, how many hit blastocysts. How many end up genetically viable? And we ended up with two beautiful genetically viable embryos. But still we're thinking like, okay, all of my tests have come back with the flying colors. Assuming we just hit our protocol, this is kind of a guarantee. But we knew it wasn't guarantee enough for future kids. We did one final retrieval for me to freeze more eggs. So we could eventually do another microtessi for Jay in the future and just work off frozen eggs. So we did that before we kind of put my body through the Lupron Depot for endometriosis, all the prep work. And we went into transfer in April and we were just like, it's a perfect little embryo. It's a 4AA. Like this one is going to be the one. My body's test, everything was flying colors. Transfer went beautiful. And then we got the news that it didn't work. And anyone who's been through that, you just start to question. You're like well, what did I do? Like, what should I have done different? What shouldn't I have done? What should I have done? How? (laughs) Because it doesn't make sense because everything on paper says it was a perfect transfer. It was a perfect embryo. Your body was perfectly prepared. And, you know, I think those are the moments where you realize infertility is one big journey of living in the simultaneous. And there's no guarantee. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that you face is people hear IVF and it's like, oh, it's some needles and then you can pick the gender of your baby and you probably get twins out of the deal and then you're done. And it's like, oh, no, that's not what infertility or IVF are at all. But I'm glad that that's somehow the perception we have in society of it.
0: Well, how many times, and I had this too, where I would keep thinking, oh, now that's the thing that's guaranteed. So, oh, of course it didn't work when I did IUI. But the first time I did IUI... I was like, that's what I needed because I wasn't getting pregnant naturally. I just needed a little boost with IUI. And then IUI didn't work. Oh, it's because I needed IVF. And then IVF didn't work. And then the genetic test. And then it, then I had also beautiful embryos didn't work. So it's so hard to recover when you think the next step is the answer that you just needed to do all this work and spend all this money to get to. But that's really devastating. I remember following you We were in touch, I think, then, and that was a really hard time. How did you process
2: that, and what happened next? That was a doozy. Yeah. That one was, it was really hard. And again, in this conversation of simultaneous, it's not like you just get to shut your life down because you're grieving. You know, it's like, I got on a plane two days later and went to D.C. for Team USA Awards because... It was our White House visit for Team USA for the Tokyo and Beijing Games where all athletes came together and went to the White House. And Jay was like, we said we're protecting the dream when we fought for Tokyo. We're not going to hide. I'm, I'm booking a ticket. I'll just go with you. We'll do it together. And, you know, I think there's there's just so many emotions. And then we were in a situation where we knew we needed to do another micro to give us a chance to get another embryo or two or three depending on how successful it was to give us a chance hopefully at another kid but then in this scenario we're like or just to give us more options to get to our first kid because we only have one embryo left now and so then we are in the situation where it was like okay well they're gonna do more testing on me because we only have one embryo left so they did the mock transfer cycle they did the biopsy We learned I need an extra day of progesterone. So we're like, okay, to your point, like, this is the thing. It's just a day of progesterone. All right. And, you know, then we did the operative hiss because they wanted to make sure there weren't any things, polyps or any of that stuff going on that we needed to take care of because there was a little inkling of one on an ultrasound. So, all right, let's just, you know, throw it all at it. So we did that. And and Jay and I, we did jump on a plane. We found a six-day
1: window without any window
2: without any meds and mind you during all of this the week before our april transfer i competed at a world series event which was trials for world championships i was still actively training and competing and going through ivf and you know doing all of that and so i had made the world's team i found out a couple days before our transfer that i made the world's team for june and in my mind i'm like oh this is gonna be so special i get to race pregnant all these things and then when we found out it didn't work, it became clear I need to withdraw from Worlds because there's no way to keep the timeline going and compete at Worlds. And we weren't willing to risk things for the second transfer. And so we found six days in the calendar. We literally a week before booked a ticket and just said, Going to the beach. We're going to the beach. And we went to Maui and we drank Mai tais on the beach for six days and sunsets and just like forced ourselves to just be the two of us for a minute. And, you know, that's not the difference maker. And I'm, I'll say that transparently because there's nothing more cringeworthy than hearing. Mm-hmm. Well, you just need to relax. relax yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> like trigger. trigger. Yeah. I'm
2: sure, no matter how much Jay relaxes, it's not going to change right. his sperm count. Absolutely. <laughs> like Absolutely. we're kind of where we're at. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Kinda, I don't think that's what's doing it. But it was a gift that we were able to give ourselves in kind of having some space process Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and dive right back into the next transfer. And
0: also to reconnect, right? Reconnect as partners, not just as partners trying and struggling to conceive. I mean, I'm sure your relationship needed, you just need to feel human again and not like you're on the clock for this, right?
1: Yeah. Not on the clock for, okay, what time is it? We need to be back at the hotel so we can do this shot to then, okay, we got 12 hours. So we had six days just to reconnect, to have our time, just the two of us. I love it.
0: I think that's such a good message for anyone listening. And
1: I'll just underscore that as a
0: relationships author, that just those moments of feeling human and not just as a human who's struggling and through any grief, but this grief we're talking about today is essential. And it doesn't, for you, it was six days. For someone else, it could literally be six hours where you get outside your general routine and you just connect as people. I love it. So then you came back and then
2: you were ready again. Yep. For the next go in July. And, and you know, it was. There was that weight of knowing it was our final embryo. And so we chose not to do Jay's micro testy that spring because there's no guarantee it's successful a second time just because it was the first time. Your odds are still what your odds are. And we didn't want to go into our transfer knowing that potentially there's no more options we wanted to know that there's still a door for another option for down the road so we went into july and our 10-day wait hits in the middle of july right after the fourth we transferred on july 7th and it's a time period that generally gets fairly quiet in the speaking world and you know we kind of chose to make it quiet on the production side we went up to our lake house in in northern minnesota and we brought the dog up and we just waited up there. It was just us with the pup and to that version of reconnecting it is because, you know, the journey, it's it's so much about what's the next appointment, what's the next protocol, what's the next this, but, you know, it also, that fantasy of the intimacy of bringing a kid into this world is taken when you go through infertility and IVF. And I think that's some of the thing of this journey for anybody who's been through it or anyone listening is like, it's natural to also just grieve the dream that you're losing in the process, even though you're still fighting for it. You're losing a version of it that you thought you would have. You're losing that moment where you have the luxury of being able to surprise your husband that you're pregnant. Like, God, I would love to surprise Jay and say, we're pregnant and have him not know and think of the cute Mm -hmm. way I want to do it. But when you go through infertility, like it's all calculated. You both find out after a blood test on day 10 or whatever your clinic's protocol is. and But I think that that was a special time for us as well. And I would say the one thing, too, people have asked, and this is what I've shared multiple times, how we handled it and what worked for us, which doesn't work for everybody, but we were very intentional to create intimacy around our injection protocols. Yep. And so the act of physically making baby well it's very medical and scientific and that intimacy looks different it's taking a moment to if breathing's your thing that calms you before giving injections because maybe needles make you anxious or whatever it is not all intimacy has to be physical in the way that we think it is and it can be little things like lighting that candle or using that favorite essential oil that you connect with that, that grounds you yeah. Taking some deep breaths together, putting some intentions out. Maybe you find a song that becomes your song that you listen to each night through the process. But just making that a special moment and allowing you two of you to connect through that. And for us, that's how we did every night of protocol through IVF retrieval protocols, through transfer prep protocols, through progesterone and oil protocol, like every step we held on to that. And I think that. Allowed us to feel connected to each other versus just like alarms going off on our phone if we need to do this med, we need to do that med.
0: I love that. I think that's beautiful. And I always say, as, again, relationship author, I've often said, you cannot have intimacy without vulnerability. There is nothing more vulnerable than that moment of progesterone in oil injection, for instance. But, you know, for us with my husband, our ritual, I like this idea of the rituals around it. Our ritual, my husband's very funny, and the humor he would use around our injections That levity it brought to the experience when so often I'd want to cry or did cry was kind of our thing. So whatever it looks like for you, what a great, great tip. Any last words about resilience in the face of adversity? You guys have been through so much, both individually and as a couple. I would love to hear from each of you on that.
1: I think to that point of finding levity in these hard moments. I think for us it's that power of living in the simultaneous. And finding, even in the hardest moments, take the moment to dance, to laugh together, whether you spend an hour cooking dinner and just dancing in your kitchen, just take that moment. And even if you're in the hardest season, finding the levity and finding that human connection with your partner is so beautiful. And it fueled me and I know it fueled us to get to the next day, to make it to the next step.
2: And I think to build off that, the other thing that, was a big part of building on that resilience and really tapping into it is acknowledging and understanding that two things can be true at the same time, right? That's the idea of living in the simultaneous. And like Jay said, you know, we could have just gotten the most devastating news, but we're still going to find a moment to laugh today, or we're still going to find a moment to feel hope today, because one doesn't have to be all-encompassing over the other. There's room for both. And creating space for both also allows you to acknowledge the emotions. And that's the same of, you know, we're nine months pregnant right now. We're weeks away from meeting this little baby that we have only dreamed of for years. But anyone who's been through infertility and gone through pregnancy knows that the world tells you you got the thing that you wanted, but yet you still feel like you're grieving all the things that got you to the point of getting what it is that you want. And you're still processing the reality of what happens when baby comes, if you want to have the opportunity to give them a sibling, if that's even a something you can do, right? And so like, whether it's navigating through grief or even navigating through joy, it's okay to have adversity with joy. It doesn't mean you're ungrateful and it's okay to find joy in the grief. It doesn't mean that you're in denial and giving that space to just feel both things at once. And Validate them and say it's okay like people in society cannot tell us that this is how you're supposed to grieve This is how you're supposed to process and I think The minute we cut free from that we give ourselves the strength and the minute we cut free from that We allow ourselves to find that resilience that exists within us Versus let it be clouded by expectations of stigma and misconception that society is putting on us I totally agree. I love that what both of you shared so beautifully
0: so honestly and powerfully. And I thank you. And I know so many people thank you for being on the pregnant podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for you. Us. And thank you for listening to another episode of pregnant In honor of National Infertility Awareness Week, we will continue to show what infertility looks like and how many people it affects. Until next time.